Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our briefing this afternoon. My name is Rob Brunner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. I'm very delighted to be hosting this briefing on offshore wind this afternoon with Senator Carper's office. And of course, we are even more delighted that Senator Carper is here with us this afternoon to kick off this important briefing. Offshore wind is something that hasn't received a lot of attention here in the U.S., which is a shame because it's received a lot of attention in other parts of the world. So this is an opportunity for us to play a little bit of catch-up to find out what's really going on uh, in different countries around the world because it truly is a proven technology uh, it's been providing commercial uh, power generation uh, very, very successfully for a number of years now. We'll hear a lot more about that. And we are very excited to talk about what really is also happening here in the U.S. where uh, we think that it will have a very bright future. But in order for that to happen, there are a lot of things that have to come together in terms of thinking about how technology needs, financial needs, policy needs, how they all come together. Because certainly the potential resource in this country in terms of looking at our coastal resources as well as the offshore wind resources in the Great Lakes are absolutely immense. But first, let me just mention a couple things about Senator Carper from Delaware that I think are very important for us as we move forward this afternoon. First of all, he is, serves on a number of committees here in the Senate, where he is ranking member of Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. He serves on the Science Committee, or, I'm sorry, on the Finance Committee, and also on the Environment and Public Works Committee. And one of the things that he has been known for since he's been here in the Senate since 2001 is his ability to really work across party lines. And in fact, he has sponsored so much legislation, has done a lot of work on many issues, particularly in the whole environmental clean energy areas, in which he really has demonstrated his ability to really be a problem solver and somebody who really tries to build consensus. Now, I would submit to you that that comes from so much of his prior experience, which he has, he brings a wealth of experience coming from state and local government, in which he, uh, prior to coming to the Senate, he had been governor, he had been the state treasurer, he had also served five terms as Delaware's congressman uh, in the House of Representatives. And coupled with that, he also brought with him, um, the, at the very, very start of his career, his experience uh, in the Navy as a Naval Flight Officer uh, for five years and where he served three tours of duty in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, and then continued to serve in the Naval Reserve, retiring as a mission commander, and retiring at the rank of captain in 1991. So when you start to weave together all of his public service coming from that in uniform and leading there, as well as having to lead through all of these offices state government, and also here in the Congress. We are very, very glad that we have Senator Carper also on this issue. Thanks, uh, thanks, Senator. Welcome to the Committee Room in the Department of Public Works. Uh, and uh, when you say the Park House, uh, 
left, right, guys left. Nice to see all you guys and gal. And uh, we're honored to be here. Thanks for joining us. Frank, frankly, thank you for showing the way. And uh, with respect to, uh, to uh, renewables and uh, natural wind in some cases. Uh, I want to thank uh, Laura Haynes, Dylan, Barbara, here is, raise your hand, Laura, Laura Haynes, and her security detail, uh, uh, or Jill, here to keep, uh, make sure she's protected, she's a good child. And uh, so we're taking broker care of Laura, and uh, we're happy to be here. Happy to be here. I just want to follow up on a couple of things that Carol said. Uh, I spent uh, five years of my life in a hot war in Southeast Asia. Our job uh, there was to uh, fly low level missions about 500 feet off the water in uh, big airplanes, 50-man crews, called an p 3 aircraft, and our job was to intercept and filter cars coming in the country to resupply the Vietcong. We were uh, trying to maintain the prop up the government stop Vietnam, we get uh, okay, we to bring it down, and they were using the Vietcong to do that. And our job was to uh, find these little John fishing boats in the South China Sea, not too far from Stratford Island, a place where the Chinese are building uh, runways and stuff like that. And uh, our mission was to uh, finally track them in to the uh, coast and turn over to the surf boats. John Kerry, thank you. And to uh, the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard, to board them and see what was going on. Uh, uh, I learned a lot about, uh, about leadership uh, from the age of 17, uh, Navy Vice Midshipman, and served right to the end of the Cold War. August of 1991. And when I sat down next month, I led a congressional delegation of uh, Vietnam veterans in the House to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. We probably find out what happened to 3,000 MIAs. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, so that's a little bit about my past. I learned a lot about leadership over that time. And one of the things I learned are these things. And this is and it relates to what we're going to be talking about in just a minute. Leadership. Our leaders are humble, not humble. Uh, we lead by our examples, not do as I say, it's do as I do. Leaders should be servants. Our job is to serve, not be served. Leaders should stay out of step, have the courage to stay out of step when everybody else is marching to the wrong tune. Leaders should be aspirational, appeal to people's better interests. Our leaders don't build themselves up by running other people down. Our leaders are interested in uh, doing what's right. Not what's easy or expedient, but what is right. A leader treat other people the way we want to be treated. That's a lesson we learned from the Pope. We have the Catholics here. Okay? I sit down for the Presbyterian. I said to some of my Catholic friends in the Senate last week, the Pope would make a great Presbyterian. <laughs> I think he would. It's not about Catholic either. But uh, one of the things he tried to go home with us in the joint session, and other words, he went gold and treat other people where they want to be treated most important. Uh, another leadership lesson for, uh, for me was uh, to uh, focus on excellence in everything we do. If it's perfect, make it better. And the last one would be, when you know you're right, be sure you're right, don't give up. Don't give up. And those are sort of like my, uh, my uh, training. As a leadership that I come up, I use all these in the Navy for all those years. I use those lessons uh, as a treasurer and governor of my state and the Congress uh, and the House and Senate. And uh, I'm totally changed. So how does all that relate to uh, offshore wind? Uh, find out what works and do more of that. Well, thank you. Thank you for showing us what works and see if uh, we can do some of that as well. Find out what is uh, right, uh, not necessarily easy, or expedient, or is the right thing to do. Well, finding new ways to generate uh, energy 
and what is it that I'm not harmful to our environment to actually provide people to work? Maybe that's not such a bad idea. It isn't perfect to make it better. Uh, we have uh, seen, uh, I saw Christopher, MIT graduate from Catherine Chandler, uh, when he was in, uh, in college, spent a summer in Erie, Pennsylvania. How many times have Erie, Pennsylvania? It's a big, uh, big uh, operation there by GE, and uh, he worked on uh, wind turbine gear reduction boxes for the better part of the summer. There's a lot of jobs that can flow, a lot of uh, research and development that flow for wind, and frankly, we're doing a lot better in terms of our ability to regenerate uh, electricity now. There we were that some that he worked there, gosh, almost 10 years ago. Almost 10 years ago. Um, the other one is when you know you're right, you're sure you're right, just don't give up. Just don't give up. And uh, I, uh, how many of you have ever been to Delaware? Would you? Not just, not just came through on I 95, paper call, not just use your easy pass. Sorry, no. You actually got out of your car, maybe went to the south and southern part of the state. Have anybody ever been to any of our beaches? Yeah. Right in we have more fire, I think Delaware last time I checked, has more five star beaches than any state in America. Little Delaware, can you believe that? And uh, the, uh, one of them is called Rehoboth. Rehoboth. Does anybody know what Rehoboth is in the Bible? Anybody know what Rehoboth means when you translate it to English? Anybody know? Here's what it means it means room for all. Is that nice? Including you. And your family. And your friends. Room for all. Uh, if you stand on the whole beach and look east, uh, you look at the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, if you look kind of east and northeast, you're looking toward uh, New Jersey. But if you look east, you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean. And if you happen to travel maybe 12, 13, 14 miles due east, Always, you find a place where the wind is just right. Just right. Anybody here remember the uh, uh, fail about the fairy tale about Goldilocks? There's a story about the porridge that was too hot, the porridge that was too cold, and the porridge was just right. It was a place that few weeks of almost 15 miles out there where the wind is just right. Not too hard, not too soft, just right. And about seven years ago, there was at the University of Delaware College of Meat Studies in Lewis, Delaware, not Lewis, Delaware, Lewis, Delaware. It's about uh, six, seven miles north of Rahola. And I uh, met with the folks at the, it was in the College of Marine Studies, the College of Marine Studies. And it's now, it's no longer called the College of Marine Studies. I, I don't remember what it's called now. So you know what I call them? the College of Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> so, um, but what is now the College of Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, shared with me all these uh, maps uh, off the, uh, the, uh, the Atlantic coast of the U.S. From right on our shores, going out 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 50 miles, 600 miles. And uh, it was uh, basically sharing uh, where the wind was, uh, what direction it flew, the different speeds that it that they're doing. And what they said to me, uh, he said, Senator Carver, Rowell Beach, 12, 15 miles out, that's a great place to create land. And, uh, and he said, for a lot of people to work, uh, deploying uh, windmill farms, we would harness the wind, we'd put a lot of people to work maintaining uh, those uh, windmill farms. And we would, because uh, the wind is always blowing out there, not too hard, not too soft, just right, uh, we would have a reliable uh, form of uh, source of energy for many, many years to come. And uh, the woman who was the head of the, uh, the College of Earth, Wind and Fire at the time, 
Nancy Carter. I said, Nancy, you have me from home. And she did. She did. Uh, among the reasons why uh, Susan Collins, before that, I went to Snow, and I've been uh, pushing the idea of an investment tax credit. An investment tax credit that uh, would basically provide not a, a tax uh, revenue, a tax uh, revenue stream after a window uh, was, uh, was put into use, but it would provide it at the commencement of construction. And a production tax credit works just fine for all land. This is not successful to build one, and you know that land of them. It's a lot harder and a lot more expensive to put in 12, 15, 30, 40, 50 miles out to sea. A lot of money. And uh, we figured out if we're going to try to see if this works here, what we should do is say, we want to not provide the tax credit forever for offshore wind, but we want to get it started. We want to get it started. And the way our legislation that we introduced in the last Congress or two with Olympia Snow, most recently with uh, Susan, is that the uh, current version of the bill, current version of the bill, we introduced in the last Congress, is that basically said this. Any, uh, any uh, construction begun, almost it was beginning at the end of last year, last year. Uh, uh, before the end of last year, before December, by December 31st, 2014, if the construction began by that date, that construction project would uh, uh, realize a 30% tax, investment tax credit. Okay? If they started the day after, too bad. Too bad. But it, the idea was to get them started. Uh, nobody took advantage of that tax credit. Did they? Maybe one. Maybe one. Folks from, folks from a smaller city, but not much smaller, uh, to advantage of. And uh, that our, our tax credit has expired, and uh, what we have to do is to extend it. And the idea is to extend not by a couple months, but actually by a couple years. So that any uh, investments in the construction offshore wind begins by the end of next year. Uh, December 31st, uh, 2016, to realize the tax credit. Uh, let's say we have uh, 6,000 uh, megawatts of uh, generating capacity signed up by the end of next year. Well, only the first 3,000 would uh, benefit from the, uh, the tax credit. We want to get it started. We want to find out and test and see if this, uh, this works. That's the way it works. 3,000 megawatts. First 3,000 signed up. You make it cut. You're good to go. If you don't, do that. But uh, the others will have uh, a good uh, good to use. So that's what we're trying to do. The legislation will be off again. Part of our office part of some tax extenders, a bunch of tax extenders before the tax, uh, before the finance committee. And uh, later this year, if we make we make sure we don't close, shut down government this year, this month, this week, get through that. And we'll have the opportunity to fire cyber wars and do some other things uh, that we uh, need to, uh, to get done. And we'll do that uh, during the course of the fall. And hopefully before the end of this, uh, before Christmas, before Christmas Eve, before December 20th, uh, we will have passed uh, most of the stuff that we need to pass and also put in place some tax extended that will include the provision offered previously by Olympus now by Susan Collins and myself that I just explained to all of you. For that, I don't think we're going to see any, uh, uh, any offshore wind uh, construction uh, begin or be completed uh, with it. I think we will. I think we will. 
and, uh, and we'll see how it works. And we'll learn from that. We stop, uh, we stop there. And uh, anybody has a comment? Anybody has a question? Anybody wants to ask me where is the newest national park in America? Are you answer that question? Delaware. <laughs> Anybody else? Any comments?
And so we're now going to turn for uh, remarks to Fatima Ahmed, who is the manager for federal regulatory affairs in offshore wind with the WIA, the American Wind Energy Association. Uh, before coming to WIA, Fatima has uh, really put uh, a lot of work in with regard to this whole issue and uh, to energy issues through her work at uh, the Department of Interior, where she worked with then Secretary Ken Salazar to help in terms of looking at the licensing of public lands for, uh, for renewable energy. And she also had been an attorney with NOAA, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration. So each, and before that, she also was in private law practice. So she brings a wealth of experience specifically that can help in terms of addressing a lot of the barriers in helping see some of the opportunities that we now see. Thank you for that very nice introduction. So on behalf of the American Joint Energy Association, thank you to EESI for organizing this briefing. We're happy to participate along with some of our member companies and draw attention to the promising technology that is offshore wind. So as the leading trade association for both land-based and offshore wind power, we can say with confidence that it's been a great year for wind power in the U.S. From our perspective, the success of land-based wind in the U.S. is a critical part of efforts to build support for offshore wind. So as context, the U.S. now has an installed capacity of over 67,000 megawatts of land-based wind, and there are over 13,000 megawatts currently under construction. Land-based wind supports 73,000 well-paying jobs nationally, including jobs at more than 500 factories in 43 states. So the jobs created, the manufacturing facilities that have been built, and the proof that large amounts of wind can be reliably integrated into the grid all demonstrate to political leaders and members of the public the significant opportunity that offshore wind represents and that it must be a, a vital component of our energy portfolio. So as Jeff will be able to describe in more detail, this summer there was historic progress in the U.S. offshore wind industry with the beginning of offshore construction at Block Island Wind Farm. We're very happy about that. And as Paul will discuss, site surveys have begun offshore Maryland for the proposed U.S. wind project. And we're encouraged about that as well. This year, we also saw the entrance into the U.S. market of a major European player in the global offshore wind sector, the Danish oil and natural gas company. They have taken over the lease for a wind energy area offshore Massachusetts from Res America. So in light of these developments, the American Wind Energy Association is optimistic about the industry as a whole. Offshore wind projects have been proposed in both state and federal waters off of the Atlantic and Pacific coast, as well as in the Great Lakes. The big picture is that offshore wind energy must be a part of our energy portfolio. This spring, DOE released the landmark Wind Vision Report, which describes a scenario in which wind power provides 10% of the country's electricity in 2020, 20% in 2030, and 35% in 2050. To support this scenario, the Wind Vision Report anticipates 22 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, and 86 gigawatts by 2050. Additionally, as we know, last month the EPA released a Clean Power Plan, which will reduce carbon emissions nationwide by 32% from 2005 levels by 2030, with state-specific targets varying in stringency. The final emission guidelines 
specifically cite offshore wind as one of the tools states can use to meet their targets. So we think that the future remains bright for offshore wind. And at the American Wind Energy Association, we're working closely with our regional partners to develop state markets for offshore wind. So for example, over the summer, we worked with Alliance for Clean Energy New York to submit comments advocating for offshore wind in conjunction with land-based wind in the New York State large-scale renewables proceeding and the New York City request for information on 100% renewable energy sourcing. So substantively, in addition to focusing on the jobs and the environmental benefits of offshore wind, we are trying to bring attention to offshore wind energy's benefits for consumers, including fuel diversity, especially in New England, where natural gas is constrained on cold winter days and electricity prices spike. Um, offshore wind provides a hedge value against volatile fossil fuel prices. Zero fuel cost wind energy also contributes to reductions in wholesale electricity prices. There's a correlation between peak demand and offshore wind resource strength. So on hot summer afternoons, the sea breeze kicks in when electricity is needed most and is most expensive. Also, congestion cost reduction. Offshore wind can help reduce costs for rate payers by providing power on congested systems like in the PJM region. Now, in addition to the substance, an important part of making the case for offshore wind is building a coalition of stakeholders who are committed to a U.S. energy future featuring offshore wind. We need to build relationships and share knowledge and expertise, whether it's about technical issues such as foundation installation techniques or various approaches to advocacy at the state and federal level. And so to that end, the American Wind Energy Association is holding a conference beginning tomorrow in Baltimore, and we really encourage you to attend. Our keynote speakers include Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Director Abby Hopper, as well as the DOE Wind and Water Power Technologies Office Director Jose Zayas. We will have international representatives from all segments of the offshore wind industry, developers, manufacturers, operations and maintenance contractors. If you have any questions about conference registration, I'd be happy to speak with you after this session. And thank you again to EESI for the opportunity to participate and for bringing attention to this important technology. as well 
we are delighted to hear firsthand, Jack, about what's happening with Plot Island. Good afternoon. Um, very happy to be here today, uh, in particular because <clears throat> Senator Carper and Senator Reid have both been such champions for offshore wind for a number of years now, and uh, we in the industry uh, speak highly of both of them very frequently because they're so critical to our effort to build in this industry here in the United States. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the Block Island Project in a moment, but I'd like to start with some perspective first. Uh, Many of us know uh, the basic story of what happened in Europe. This is a graph that shows how many megawatts are in operation in Europe from offshore wind projects. And most people tend to focus on the right-hand side of that chart because it's impressive, because the lines are really large, and there are 10,000 megawatts in operation in, in, in Europe right now, 3,000 turbines spinning. The oldest project dates back to 1991. It's still in operation. So this is a big, mature, sophisticated industry in Europe where many billions of dollars are being invested every year building these projects. Uh, but I often like to focus on the left side of the slide because what we're going through in the U.S. with a really slow, moving development of this industry, which seems like an excruciating long period of time to get the industry started, is, is not really surprising because the same thing happened in Europe. It took almost a decade and there really were projects back there to the left of 1994. There were just so few of them that they barely registered on the chart. Uh, it took a long time before the industry took off in Europe, and then it exploded. And in calendar 2015, there was going to be about a 40% increase in capacity from offshore wind. There are billions and billions of dollars being invested in Europe right now. Consequently, it's an enormous industry. This is the Port of Bremerhaven which was a sleepy, dying port facility. It used to be a fishing facility, uh, port uh, a number of years ago, and suddenly the offshore wind industry showed up. And now it's a big, booming town. And those vessels that you see, and those foundations, uh, those yellow things in the back are foundations for offshore wind turbines, uh, have created tens and tens of thousands of jobs in Denmark and in Germany and the UK and in France and in the Netherlands and all across all across Europe. Meanwhile, today we have nothing spinning in the U.S. today, but we have an enormous potential. Um, and the DOE says by 2020 we could have many, many jobs right, in this industry because it's a big, complex, capital-intensive, technology-intensive industry. And in Europe, all of the big players are in this game. This is not a, an industry for small, uh, for small players. Big companies like Siemens are invested billions of dollars in this technology. It's a real competitive industry. Um, it certainly can work here. And, and this is, these two slides to me um, demonstrate why offshore wind makes sense in the U.S. even in the near term. Um, this, this is the market fundamentals of offshore wind in the U.S. On the left side, you see uh, a nighttime satellite image which is a pretty good proxy for energy demand. And you can see how brightly lit up it is from Boston to Washington. Um, that also coincides with, uh, with really high population densities, extremely high property values, and let's just say a high aversion to big, smelly power plants in those neighborhoods. Uh, so it is incredibly difficult to build anything on that coastline. Imagine trying to get a permit and local approval to build 
natural gas fire plant in, um, in East Hampton, New York. Really hard to do. And, and that story can be repeated multiple times across, up and down this coastline. Southern New York, New England, those are hard places to build new energy sources, and there's really no other energy in the area uh, that's native, that's domestic. But if you look at the right side of the map, this is essentially the solution. This is a wind map of the, of the East Coast. And so the darker colors, the, the reddish, the reds and oranges, indicate really strong wind speed. Um, that red and the orange, those are world-class wind speeds. They're every bit as good as the North Sea, where all of the projects, or most of the projects in Europe have been built. So we have a world-class energy resource just off our coast. And it is really easy to interconnect that wind resource into these coastal communities. Uh, it's quite easy to build a 20-mile transmission line under the water, under the only property under the federal government. Uh, it's a whole lot harder to build a 500-mile transmission line from Canada to downstate New York, crossing 15 different municipalities and hundreds of property owners. So we have a huge demand. On, on the left, we have a huge resource on the right. That's the market case for offshore wind in the US. This is just a snapshot of one particular market. This is New England. This is what's happening in New England today. And similar stories could be told in other parts of the country. But right now in New England, uh, there are about 8,500 megawatts of power that will retire in the next few years. Coal plants, old oil plants, and now, adding on top of that, potentially some nuclear power plants that are receiving a whole lot more scrutiny today than they did a couple years ago. That energy is going offline very soon. Most of these power plants in the Northeast were built in the 50s and 60s. And those plants are going to retire. They have to be replaced with something. We're beginning a replacement cycle in power generation in the United States. And starting here, New England first. Unfortunately, New England doesn't have any domestic resource. And you see that uh, little gas line from Pennsylvania. Sure, there's a lot of gas in Pennsylvania, but you have to get it to New England somehow, which means building really long pipelines that are very controversial. Or you could bring in hydro from Canada. Again, really long controversial lines that are difficult to permit, difficult to site, very expensive. Uh, but we have a domestic energy source just off the coast of New England, and that's offshore wind. Deepwater uh, is working on two projects on the coast of uh, New England right now. The Block Island project, Block Island Wind Farm, you can see on that map, is right in the center. I'll talk about that in a second. But that really is a demonstration scale project and a prelude to the larger project that we're working on, which is Deepwater One, just outlined in yellow there. Uh, we secured the lease for that site um, from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management through the first competitive auction that that agency held for that site. Uh, we control now, under a 30-year lease, 256 square miles of ocean, which has the capacity to generate about 1,500 megawatts. Uh, and our plan is to develop that site uh, in increments over time and to sell that power into the three markets you see on that, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Long Island. But we're, we have to start with something, and uh, Block Island is where we're started, uh, where we've started. This will be the first option we form in the United States. Um, you can see Block Island on the map on the uh, southeast corner of the island. There are five dots down there in that shaded area. Uh, those, uh, those dots represent the wind farm. Uh, this process really began in 2008 
uh, with really strong bipartisan support uh, in Rhode Island state government, where we are now in, we now enjoy the support of our third consecutive governor in Rhode Island and the entire delegation in the state. So uh, we have really strong local support, which for a project like this is absolutely fundamental, and we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't have that support. Um, the project. Uh, right now is under construction today. As we speak, it's under construction. Uh, we will build it in two phases in 2015. We'll, we do the first half of the project and we'll finish the project in 2016. And so it will be producing its first energy around uh, October of next year. This is a photo. This was the moment when steel went in the water uh, in the United States. That was the end of July. Uh, that is the first uh, steel foundation uh, being uh, lifted into, onto the seabed. Uh, that is uh, a very large crane barge, the largest crane barge on the East Coast, um, lifting 450 tons of steel in the air, and it's about to load that extremely slowly into the water. Uh, it's about 90 feet of water there. And now we have installed five of those foundations. Uh, we have project consists of five installations. Uh, and uh, we were very excited for that one. It creates a lot of jobs. You really can't see the text here, but these are photos of this is these are photos of, of actual people in Rhode Island working. None of those are stock images, except for the boat, uh, because we're building the boat. It doesn't exist yet. But we are employing about 300 different people locally. Uh, Rhode Islanders out on the water in the port facilities. We're commissioning a vessel that will be built in Rhode Island. Uh, this industry creates a lot of jobs. It creates jobs across the spectrum from really high-tech engineering to blue-collar jobs, welders, electricians, and laborers, uh, and pub captains, and, and everything in between. So it's a very uh, uh, labor-intensive industry. Even for the Block Island project, we're using four different ports facilities in Rhode Island to build five turbines. So it requires a lot of infrastructure. And this is sort of the potential of what we could be doing more locally. This is European content that we'll be using for the Black Island Project. On the left, it's an installation vessel uh, that's coming from a Norwegian company. Uh, but it's a specialized, it's a purpose-built vessel. And on the right is the turbine that we'll be installing. Uh, it's made by Alstom. It's a six megawatt machine. Uh, it's about 600 feet tall from the sea level to the tip of the blade. It's very large. Um, Right now, all of the really high-tech work in offshore is being done in Europe. And the first slide that I showed you is the reason why, where the projects are. Uh, but as we build projects in the US, more and more of the supply chain will come to the US. And we'll have our own vessels, and we'll be doing more and more of the manufacturing here in the US, um, which will add on to all those jobs I just talked about that were construction-related. So, this is an industry with enormous potential. Uh, we're happy to be here today, happy to answer any questions about this project, and uh, happy to be following my colleague, uh, Mr. Rich. Pretty exciting to see that. And I must say, it's got to be amazing to see the scale of this equipment. Sometimes I really want to go see one of these operations. Uh, I am now delighted to introduce Paul Rich, who is the Director of Project Development for U.S. Wind, uh, which is based in, in Maryland. And prior to joining U.S. Wind, uh, Paul had actually been the Development Officer for Deep Water Wind for a couple of years. 
he brings a lot of experience in the energy industry um, where he had been uh, development officer at CCH Holdings Group, uh, where he had been involved in terms of looking at underground uh, transmission, another very, very important aspect of dealing with, with offshore wind, and had worked on a variety of other electricity projects. He has also served uh, uh, on the staff of uh, former Congress, or a former congressman, um, Ellen um, of Maine, uh, as well. And he, too, brings uh, a lot of experience coming out of the Navy, where he had been a lieutenant commander. And so all of those years also helped build a lot of the experience that we are seeing in this whole industry and in its interest. Well, Uh, thank you, Carol, and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, it's exciting to be able to lift my head up out of my uh, cubicle on my desk and actually see some people who uh, aren't either railing against me or uh, running away. So thanks for all, all of you coming. And Carol, thanks for setting this up. And um, what's interesting in hearing her talk about my background is uh, there's at least one project there that's successful that I worked on. And just making sure there's another one that I had anything to do with is successful. And, our project can only hope and like the success that people are witnessing doing right now in Rhode Island. So I also want to thank Laura and all her uh, work with Senator Carper and, um, and our interests in uh, uh, offshore wind and uh, working with Senator Collins' office to make sure that um, we take care of those things that you can take care of to help stimulate development. And uh, without it, um, this industry would truly uh, still be each, so to speak. So. Um, well, I was impressed to hear Senator Carver talk about leadership because that's what it takes to get these things off the ground. I think Jeff was right in pointing out that the European experience took a decade. Um, and yet, as we are wont to do in the U.S., it's sort of the wild west of, the de of development. We're not fronting big companies to lead these undertakings. They're starting to come now, as we see with Dong Energy coming over from Europe, one of the leaders in offshore wind. But Deepwater Wind is a startup company. The company I work for, U.S. Wind, is a startup company. And so there are opportunities that we're willing to take uh, a chance on, but it takes a little bit of uh, bravery, a little bit of risk, tolerance, and you need some help from congressional and uh, state legislatures to make sure you have the support to try to pull this off. In Maryland, what we're pursuing is the same thing as Jeff is up in Rhode Island. Um, we're looking for a larger project is about 500 megawatts. Um, and I'm not going to spend much time on this page because they didn't know who might cover it, but between Fatima, Jeff, and Carol, even Senator Carper, I think you know the facts and you can look at it afterwards if you like. But um, I'll just dive into the Maryland project. It's a project that starts about 12 miles off of the coast of Ocean City, and it's in a wind energy area that's about 80,000 acres. It uh, will allow for our 500 megawatt project. And in fact, something we'll I'll touch on at the end of this presentation, I mean, we could have more. 1,500 megawatts of offshore wind power could be generated from this one wind energy area that the Department of Interior's uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management auctioned off last year. Um, but we're going to use 250 megawatts of this 500 to pursue under the Maryland offshore renewable energy credit program. Now, this gives us a pathway to the marketplace. What that OREC will allow is for us to have a 
uh, an opportunity to marketize the rates of our energy to um, the ratepayers of Maryland to allow this project to move forward. All right. The other 250 megawatts were on our own to figure out how to sell that and um, integrate it into the grid. But pathways to marketplace is a key term to remember in all this because developers can only take this so far with the support from uh, the congressional legislature. Uh, 125 turbine installations would most likely support a 500 megawatt project. Um, and then we're looking to put about two, two and a half billion dollars into the development of this project. Now some of that is capital, some of that is um, development costs, but a large chunk, and Jeff talked about this, is in the workforce development, the construction and fabrication side of this. And what our project at least holds the potential for is helping to bring that supply chain from Europe over to the US shores, right? So we can finally begin to establish a, an industry, a source of workforce development, um, you know, some centers of excellence that will uh, probably develop much like the Silicon Valley did, but this time in, in offshore wind, where we start to pull some of that technology over here and set up bases of operation and intelligence and synergy and capacity. So we're looking for an in-service date of uh, the first quarter in 2020, and in and along that way, we're going to be creating about 3,100 jobs. Now, that's direct, indirect, and induced, right? Those are the forecast models. We know we're going to have to employ almost 700 uh, people directly, um, just for welding, for fabrication, for assembly. Some of the jobs Jeff talked about in terms of marine operations and services, there's a whole host of other businesses that develop from this kind of project that in Maryland would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars of indirect and induced benefits to the economy. So it's big business. Um, this project has uh, made fairly substantial progress. We secured the lease last December. The auction was held in August and all that happened and then the lease was secured in December. We started building a development team in March and um, we tried to draw from people who were known in the industry or at least had familiarity with the uh, uh, systems and components of the industry. Um, we've invested close to $20 million thus far. Now that's a huge spike and, and the rest of the development costs will probably taper, but um, we had to go out into the wind energy area and perform marine survey operations. We had to conduct environmental studies and analyses of avian migration patterns, marine mammals and sea turtle activity and all of this goes into a site assessment plan that we then um, submit to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management who's the coordinating agency for our permitting process. Um, and so that's a significant amount of money up front at risk by one company. So we're asking a lot if we think this is going to be popular up and down the East Coast with folks who don't do this over in Europe, right? Um, we also have uh, applied for and received a few positions for our project with PJM. And I say positions because one is, is uh, purely for the OREC slated um, uh, offtake, and then the other is for our uh, remaining 250 megawatts. So we've begun that process, we've had scoping meetings, and perhaps more importantly, we held uh, just Friday of last week an introduction to 
folks from the U.S. and around the world who are interested in being involved in this project as major contractors doing steel fabrication. So these are folks that would take flat steel, roll into tubular shapes, forms of steel, and assemble these into those jackets that Jeff's company installed off of Block Island. And these folks would be drawn into the Baltimore area because of the scale of this project. Um, building 125 turbines will you know, interest a company to move here to do that kind of activity, um, especially when the oil and gas industry is a little bit um, uh, slow down these days. Uh, but we had interest from companies in Germany, Georg, and we had companies in Michigan, Louisiana, and um, Ohio. So we were excited to see that there was a lot of interest in that. And Baltimore has a great waterfront resource that can actually allow these companies to do the scale of this work right on the waterfront. So we're interested in that um, and trying to be a uh, catalyst in creating that activity. Um, in terms of federal support, we've talked about the ITC. Um, there's been a great effort now under Bone to um, organize lease areas and to hold the auctions and, and identify wind energy areas that are suitable for development, and that's really the key. Um, you know, the permanent consolidation I talked about, and then also infrastructure improvements such as DOT Tiger grants, um, DOE research and development grants um, that folks are taking advantage of are all very important to lay a baseline for the industry. Um, but some challenges still remain. It's still a very lengthy process to permit these projects. And so when I talk about the $20 million of upfront at-risk development capital that we've put into this project, well, we've still got four more years to go before this project is likely to have um, a project in operation. And so your development cycles are enormous. You have to have a lot of risk tolerance. Um, it's, it's also something to encourage around interagency collaboration. So the way the Coast Guard, the Department of Interior, Department of uh, Energy, Department of Transportation, all of these agencies interact is very important that there's a common message that comes out the other side. I mean, if everyone's working in their own individual area, it's helpful, but when there's collaboration, um, as we learned about up in the New England states around this kind of effort, there's a huge benefit to all of us trying to get a common understanding of where, where to put our resources. And I'll just touch at the end here my last theme, which is really for the developer's interest, having a pathway to the marketplace is really what's in need of further attention. And by that, I mean in Maryland, we have an ORAC process, which gives us a pathway to the marketplace for 215 megawatts. If we can encourage the federal government and the staff of these great congressional leaders to work closely with states, um, I think you'll find that there are common benefits to these activities that can be shared in a region, can be shared across states, and the parochial interests of the states are less um, high level. Um, we need to continue to assist developers in, in organized labor and any number of other uh, folks that are interested in helping to develop a workforce to put funds, put training, and allow us to access capital to develop that. Um, minority business enterprises and small businesses continue to need capital and access to capital, and that's a huge deal. Um, we are trying to encourage 
uh, a minimum goal of 15% MBE participation in our projects in the state of Maryland, which for a technology and an industry that's based in Europe, this is a huge challenge, right? But they need access to capital. We need to help encourage them to be known and to learn and get on a steep uh, curve. Um, and I guess lastly, we need to try to shorten that supply chain. And by that, we mean home-growing companies that can do the same things that are now prevalent in a mature industry. So to the extent we can uh, you know, follow in your wake in this, in this way, we'd love to. And we're open to participate. Um, I know Jeff's been out on the trail a lot talking about the opportunities in this industry. And at night, he's working on developing the project. So we've got to find ways to really harness all of our activities and the things you are all thinking about to try to make this a, uh, a successful endeavor in the States. I look forward to answering any questions later, but thank you so much for your attention. Really appreciate it. Actually, the, 
uh, idea is to build the whole energy system on renewable energies, and of course, we need a lot of transformation, including the market system. Uh, the energy, energy research has to provide new uh, success and so on. Um, our four working fields are not only electricity, today we are only talking about electricity, but of course it also includes transport, heating, uh, and all the relevant sectors. So this is the whole concept of our energy, and that is why we have so much uh, push on all the important and relevant energy resources, including wind. Um, if you look at our long-term targets, um, three uh, blocks have long-term targets, climate, we want to bring down our um, greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 by 80 to 95% at the least. At the same time, we want to uh, increase our renewable energy in the power sector to at least 80% and 60% overall and energy efficient. Energy efficiency, we want to double the energy efficiency of today. So these are quite ambitious targets. This is where we stand at the moment, so we have a long way to go. And when we, of course, uh, what's important for a policy like that, you have to come forward and uh, monitor the success. So we are quite, quite doing quite well, but a lot of projects are, uh, as you can see, not, uh, not finalized with the, with the green arrow. Um, we still have a lot of things to do for the next years. So the, the reason. Uh, why Germany is doing it, it's not quite clear, and the good thing is it's well accepted and supported in the German public uh, with regard to renewable energy, so people prefer to have, even if there's a lot of opposition against uh, new power lines and even uh, um, um, windmills, they prefer to have that one instead of a nuclear power plant in front of their house. Um, this is where Germany stands today with regards to, to our uh, electricity production. We basically came from nothing in renewable energy in 2004. We tripled that amount. Uh, first half year in Germany, renewable energy is 32%, so it's growing fast. And of course, wind is the strongest uh, renewable resource, and uh, offshore is coming. Um, today, we have uh, around 40 gigawatt installed capacity onshore and a 2.3 gigawatt installed offshore, so offshore is only a small fraction of that, but growing fast. This is our uh, target for the next 10 years. We want to expand the today's share of renewables up to 45%. So, coming now to, to the wind capacity. After hydropower, wind is the leading uh, resource so all our studies we looked at when we when we looked at is it possible to to run Germany uh, power wise with renewables? It is possible, and offshore wind is an important part of that. Uh, we have the resources actually in the north, and if you, if you look at the um, the market, the wind market in Germany uh, grew steadily of, over the last ten years, while you see a lot of uh, fluctuation uh, amongst the European states. And the specific situation in Germany is like uh, you have all the capacities, uh, all the resources, the potential in the north, uh, offshore, and you have the consumption centers more in the south and in the west. So uh, it's also a question of how to bring that electricity to the south. You can see the offshore wind potential, and as uh, what was mentioned before, that uh, mostly in the North Sea, but also in the Baltic Sea, we have our projects going. Um, 
This year was exceptionally uh, successful in Germany. So in the first half of 2015, 1,700 megawatt were installed. That is more than uh, whatever was installed in whole Europe in a, within a year. And by the end of the year, we expect uh, altogether a capacity online of 3,300 megawatt in Germany offshore. So that is grown. The target actually in Germany is to have 6,500 uh, 6, megawatts by the end of 2020. Uh, we are on track of that. And the major policy which drives um, the installation of offshore is a feed-in tariff. And we have a feed-in tariff since uh, two decades working in Germany, but to really boost offshore, we have to work on the, the, uh, uh, the system. And the idea is now, and this is what, what actually uh, boosted the, the uh, investment in offshore wind, is that we have a concentrated eight-year phase uh, where we give to investors um, a feed-in tariff of almost 19 cents. 90.4 uh, cents for the first eight years, and then that feed and tariff goes back to 3.9 cents. Uh, this actually helped to, to bring investors on board, and of course, it also helped in Germany uh, to develop um, new technologies and to overcome the first problems, particularly with the grid connection and with the capacity of the ships. And one uh, example, which Jeff already mentioned, is the sea. For city Bremerhaven, it's a region which experienced a uh, harsh uh, economic downward uh, trend in the 90s and in the 80s, and offshore wind actually brought a new perspective to that region uh, with a lot of new, as you can see here, uh, new enterprises um, being developed on that area. You see, before, before it happened in here, a lot of new uh, companies working, so these are typical projection as you can see. And this is a projection of a little bit all outdated data. Um, actually at the moment another report could have and I think this uh, taken over the whole provision. Uh, that, is, that is a positive uh, perspective we have on offshore at the moment in Germany and we're looking forward to a quite uh, uh, bright future. Carbon emissions from the power sector and the economy as a whole. 
uh, and improving security of supply. Uh, unlike the United States, uh, we don't have vast new fields of gas coming online. Um, that's contributing to a great amount of the new power developments in the U.S. Um, and certainly security of where the country's uh, electricity will be coming from in future years um, remains very important geopolitically. Um, so to that end, the UK has been uh, seeking to provide more certainty uh, to renewable energy projects, particularly offshore wind, uh, and reducing the risk of investment um, to leverage private investment. Uh, so the um, UK has become the world leader in offshore wind, um, and um, is one thing in particular to note is the role of supply chain. Um, might not, uh, you know, sort of big names, you might see painted, uh, the logo is painted on the side of turbines, but uh, as mentioned a little earlier, there's a great deal more to the offshore wind industry. Um, you know, port facilities, suppliers, financers, um, you know, everything that goes into all previously featured a number of great pictures of those big facilities creating all this equipment, uh, and the UK is a leader in particular in that area. Um, I've mentioned providing marketing confidence, um, building a competitive supply chain, uh, innovation, both in technology and in uh, financing and making sure that making these projects take the habit. Um, and developing a highly skilled workforce. Um, many of you will be aware that the uh, North Sea uh, through the 70s, 80s, and 90s was a major area of the world for the oil and gas industry. Uh, the offshore wind industry um, really builds on that experience quite well. And that uh, as fewer and fewer new oil and gas fields are being developed, uh, a lot of the onshore infrastructure, so the port facilities, uh, the expertise. Um, so we saw photos, for example, of the Block Island project of um, those jets being loaded into the ocean. I believe those are actually manufactured in Louisiana using oil and gas um, know-how and knowledge. Likewise, uh, in the UK, that knowledge base has been very important um, for the wind industry. And the wind industry has been very important for those parts of the country where we're seeing uh, declines in employment due to the decline of the oil and gas sector. Uh, some quick facts and figures there for you to take a look at. Um, more than five gigawatts of capacity, um, 3.5 million homes worth of energy production, uh, nearly 7,000 full-time jobs. Um, so, uh, and increasingly, uh, more and more going in as a number of leasing rounds of these large tracts of, of uh, North Sea and Irish Sea waters, um, which will see further development in the coming years. We've got graph coming up with that. Uh, just very briefly, uh, your standard electricity mixed graph there, um, looking at the increasing role for renewables, which is mainly offshore wind uh, and existing hydro. Uh, but in the future, that will be offshore wind being the, the part of UK renewables growth will be. Uh, and in a year, actually about a year coming in. Uh, this is a little bit dated, but you can see the leading role that the UK has uh, in offshore wind uh, and increasing. Uh, and the map, just to give you a sense, um, the oil and gas industry, um, I guess I do not have a laser here, but um, the North Sea, so to the east of Great Britain, um, those port facilities are very important for the offshore wind industry. 
uh, and also in the Irish Sea, uh, just to the west, between um, England uh, and Ireland there. Um, so to meet the target goal of 10 gigawatts by 2020, uh, this is kind of the, the current process towards getting there. A little bit dated also here, this is from several months ago, uh, and the sector is changing quickly enough that May 2015 is out of date. Uh, but you can see operational uh, with significant under construction uh, capacity coming in. Um, I'll discuss the government support on offer section in just a moment, um, but also quite a lot of capacity that's received planning consent for the projects to go forward, and quite a lot in planning also. So uh, the 10 gigawatts by 2020 is effectively a business as usual policy case. Uh, without significant further changes in policy uh, or investment environment. So it could be even more. Uh, this is kind of a broad sense of what pools are from British government in terms of uh, power sector policy. So the three main pillars for power sector planning, decarbonization, security of supply, and affordability. Uh, I think some of you have printouts, so I won't bore you with going through some of the text there, but we'll work a look at some of the policies the British government is pursuing. Uh, to meet these three goals for the electricity sector, or energy sector broadly, I should say, in many cases. Um, so financial support for low-carbon energy. Uh, in the past years, uh, our called renewables obligation has been the main policy driver for renewable energy. That's basically a renewable portfolio standard. So those of you familiar with US renewables policy are probably familiar with that kind of policy. But moving forward, uh, the UK government's transitioning what we call contracts for difference. Uh, which sort of feel, fills the same kind of uh, policy niche as a feed-in tariff. Um, so how this works, um, um, you'll have to bear with me there without a laser, but um, so effectively, um, a project receives a set of a strike price. So the government determines, well at this point, the government determines a price um, which, if the wholesale uh, electricity price is lower than that strike price, the project fees receives about the top up. Um, and if the wholesale price goes above that strike price, the project pays that money back. Uh, the idea is that this provides certainty for the project going forward, so they can go to investors and say, hey, we know we can get 60 pounds an AY hour for our project. We know what our return investment will be. We're insulated from the barriers of the market and that's of uncertainty, which would be deter investors or the investors to be seeking a much higher interest rate than they can get with this kind of security. Um, in the future, this, uh, this program is going to change slightly so that uh, projects that actually bid for a contract for difference uh, and projects that bid for the lowest possible price uh, will get those contracts, will get that certainty, uh, and that will guarantee lower prices for consumers while still creating that uh, certainty for investors, for projects going forward. Um, because, I mean, it's often just uncertainty with these new technologies that you investors look at this, they say, you know, I've been doing, you know, gas wells since 1975. Like, I know that. I know it looks like a good project. You guys can come in here and tell me how great your, your offshore wind project is, but I'm not so familiar with that. I don't know what, how the markets play. I don't know what kind of volatility there is, you know, how the supply chain will impact it. Uh, this reduces that uncertainty so that they can get that private sector financing. Um, and seven projects so far have received these contracts, uh, and there will be many more in the coming years. 
Um, and just a couple other examples of ways that the UK government supports uh, financing uh, and other aspects of the offshore wind industry. Uh, so certain areas of designated enterprise zones, you have similar policies in some states in the US. Um, so this is a tax relief uh, and uh, basically accelerated appreciation for uh, business investment. Um, financing of, of helps financing support for projects. Uh, the Green Investment Bank uh, invests in various renewable energy technologies. Um, there's one or two states that have similar kinds of programs. Uh, export finance uh, for UK businesses uh, exporting goods and services overseas. Uh, and on the research side, the re offshore renewable energy catapult um, supports innovation in the sector. Um, and much of this, and actually much of what I'm talking about, also applies to the uh, ocean hydrokinetics and tidal sector as well, um, which policy-wise often gets that together. The offshore wind is just probably about 15 years behind the technology, but it's starting to move forward. facility came online in the UK. Um, and I think in terms of looking at what is happening in Europe, it's also so fascinating in terms of looking at the interconnection of policy and technology and leadership, political will, how all of that has um, really been critical in terms of making this all happen. Let's open it up for your questions. We've got uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, and if you can identify yourself, please. I'll start here in the back and then here. Okay, go ahead. Um, hi, my name is Camille. I'm from Climate Aware. I've been publishing, and my question is for the U.S. representatives. Thank you all for being here, by the way. Um, what specific opportunities do you see with the Clean Power Plan, and are any of you in talks with your states to include offshore wind in their compliance plans? Well, that's a complicated one. Because the places where offshore wind is most uh, likely to be developed first uh, are in the northeastern states, uh, where you know those states, um, I think, generally are acknowledged as having a pretty good head start on the clean power plan right now. Um, I sure wish I could sell offshore wind to um, to the middle of the country. It'd be great if I could sell it uh, into Kentucky or something like that, but that's uh, not the way it works. So. You know, the clean power plan, frankly, is not a major focus for offshore wind right now. I think uh, um, our, our near-term focus is in working with state leaders to, uh, to promote offshore wind. Uh, but I think given the advanced stage of uh, where most of the northeastern states are right now with their Reggie program, for instance, that is helping a lot of the northeastern states make their initial compliance with the clean power plan, um, it's, it's not sort of the, the principal vehicle we're looking at to promote offshore wind. I think perhaps in, in the longer term, uh, you know, past the first phase of compliance to clean power plan, offshore wind certainly can be um, a huge part of compliance uh, with some of the later targets and later goals of the plan. So in terms of the, the near-term development opportunities, uh, as a project developer, I'm not so focused on the year 2030 right now. Uh, I'm, I'm far more focused on the next couple of years. Uh, and so, um, from our perspective, we're, 
who focuses on more near-term opportunities. And, uh, thanks, Camilla. I think um, just to reinforce what Jeff's saying, uh, for example, in, in Delaware, as Laura knows, um, there's a very large, um, I think probably Bunker C or number two crude oil power plant um, in Indian River that was about 1,000 megawatts. It's now shut down several units, so it's only about, I think, 250 megawatts in operation. This was done all in advance of the clean power plant. However, having said that, if you look south of where we are in Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, great wind resources, right? There's just no climate in the political sphere to take on this kind of power, offshore wind. So if the clean power plant could push them into that position, and as I think we know, South Carolina um, is not interested in participating at this point um, in that plan. So there, there's a lot of hurdles to cross, but if you could get them on board, um, it will help this industry uh, be realized in the US in, in an area that's actually quite significant from a resource standpoint. Did you want to add anything? No, I'm and I think that you're right in terms of as we look forward, things may change. And the other thing that I thought was very interesting in terms of thinking about the whole port issue and how people who are really concerned about port development and where they do have a wind resource can may very well start to become more of a leadership voice in those states too. One never knows. Okay? Um, here first and then we'll go over here. Hi, my name is Mike Warren from the Northern Eagle Employers Office. Um, my question is, it was mentioned at the beginning that um, it's much more expensive to build the offshore wind farms. Why not just build more on land? Is there a more is there more financial gains by building them offshore? Is the, the wind stronger? Does it potentially make more money? I'm just wondering, why invest more offshore when we could build them more onshore? Sure, let me take a first shot at that. Um, it's a very good question, um, and we have done a lot in this country building a lot of onshore wind um, projects uh, across the country, really. Um, but energy projects are very geographically specific. So we have a huge wind energy resource in the middle of the country, but you can't get that energy from the middle of the country to New York without building enormous transmission lines that aren't there today and that are really hard and almost impossible to build. So you, it, you can have a great wind resource in a place where you really can't serve the demand for that energy. So the, the value in offshore wind is its location very close to large population centers on the two coasts. So we've been focused mostly on the east coast here because it's, it's, it's the near-term opportunity for offshore wind is to serve markets really up and down the eastern seaboard uh, in particular, focused in that area between uh, Massachusetts and Washington. Um, those states in, on that eastern seaboard, they don't have any onshore wind, or have any very little onshore wind. And it's very difficult to build large amounts of onshore wind in those states, or import it from part of the country where there already is wind. Um, in addition, there's, there's a great amount of offshore wind on the west coast as well. So markets like Southern California, uh, again, where it's really hard to build big power plants in Southern California, uh, that's a great long-term opportunity for offshore wind. So I think 
Uh, the way to think of it is uh, you can't just build an onshore wind farm wherever you'd like it, whatever you'd like to build it. You have to build it where the wind is, and you have to build it where, preferably where there's real demand. And there's a real mismatch between where the onshore wind resource is and these, these uh, markets that we're talking about here on the East Coast. Uh, first of all, I really want to say thank you for showing up and taking an interest in this from the uh, speaker's office because I think that's uh, it's huge. Appreciate you being here. Um, I think a couple other things to reinforce what Jeff was saying was um, these are expensive, not just because of the, uh, the size of these things or the location offshore, but remember the supply chain is generally located in Europe right now. So as this industry starts to mature in the U.S., your costs will come down per unit, okay? The other thing is, it's attractive to build offshore for the reasons Jeff said, but also because offshore, your, your capacity factor, the potential of the energy produced by these units is around 40% or more. Onshore, it's far less than that. So without getting into a competition around whether land-based wind is even efficient compared to offshore wind, just look at the yield that you get offshore. It's significant. And again, these are basically enormous construction projects, right? Once they're built, they're built with a PPA or some kind of offtake contract on the end. So you know what the costs are. The costs are embedded up front. And then it's 20 years of payback, right? That's why it's expensive as well. So just some things to think about. But when it comes down to the supply chain being relocated here, and a lot more of these uh, units being built offshore, I think it'll become more cost uh, competitive with other renewables anyway. Okay, um, here and over here, right? Hi, Janet Larson, our Policy Institute and Duke University. I was curious, um, it was great to hear the international perspective, um, and I wanted to know if anyone could comment a little bit about the early U.S. history attempting to get into offshore wind, namely Cape Wind. Um, are they they're completely dead in the water since they lost their PPA? And is there are other developers eyeing that area to come in, or will anything ever happen off the coast of Nantucket? That's your neck of the woods now. Well, you know, it's uh, uh, what to say about the Cape Wind project. Um, it's been, uh, it's been quite the saga, 15-year effort to try to build a project that ultimately looks like it's going to be unsuccessful. So uh, it's disappointing, certainly from the perspective of trying to build an industry. Um, but you know, we as project developers don't linger too much about uh, projects that aren't going to happen. We're very focused on what's happening in the future. And I think the good news is that the industry is moving forward. And, and much has happened in the last few years, notwithstanding uh, Cape Wind's uh, struggles. Uh, in Europe, thousands of turbines are, are being installed every year. Uh, billions invested, we're building projects on the East Coast. And the projects that we're building on the East Coast now are very different from the Cape Wind proposal in one really critical aspect. That project was located in Nantucket Sound, which is that area between Cape Cod Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. In the middle, about at this closest point, about four miles from from the land. All of which, which means the project is very visible from the land. It's very visible from the shore at four miles. 
The projects that we're talking about now, Paul's project, he noted that uh, it's located at least 12 miles from the coast. Uh, our project is in that similar 15 plus mile range from the coast. Means that the projects would be much less visible from uh, where people live. So we're talking about projects that are based in federal waters, far offshore. The wind happens to be a lot better when you're farther offshore. That's the other great benefit of being further offshore. But they're much less visible. Uh, consequently, they they um, are less, much less controversial from from a local community's perspective. And I think deep water wind was was formed to get into deep water where you can't see these projects. Uh, and that's part of what we want to do as a company. And I think most developers who are focused in the US right now are thinking about these projects that are very far offshore, that, that are not nearly as close to the coast as Cape Point Project was. And that's a big change in the way we're building these projects. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember is, um, uh, and think back on one of the slides I had, which had about the agencies working together on these things. And Boeing, in particular, has done an excellent job since the early attempts of developer-led siting to find wind energy areas that are least impactful, not only to the environment, but least impactful to um, multiple uses. So let's say if it's a visual impact that Jeff talks about with Cape Wind is an issue, one of the issues. Um, you know, they really vet these areas now in the way that you see it in South Carolina. There's, a, there's been a, a couple year process now of trying to determine where the best wind energy areas might be. And next week in North Carolina, there's another round of, of uh, reviews by stakeholders interested in finding the right area to develop off of North Carolina. And sometime in early November, off of uh, New Jersey, there'll be an auction held by uh, Boeing to lease underwater lands in that area that will be less controversial and impactful because of the steps they took to vet these areas. So I think it's a, it's a much different landscape from a developer standpoint. Does that answer your question? A lot of learning all the way around. Mm -hmm. Okay, you two gentlemen. Um, my name is David Schwartz, and I'm a retired professor from Howard University. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'd be teaching. But uh, I have a website with my oldest son, who's an environmental scientist, called SolarUtopia.org, and we do modeling of global wind and solar and climatic impacts of that. So my my question centers on the energy return over energy invested of offshore wind. If you look at the blogs and uh, uh, websites and so on of the nuclear fossil fuel industry, they claim that the ratio is very low and it's not worth doing. And they, put, they fudge the data by including embedded energy for the renewables, but not for the fossil fuel and nuclear. Uh, so what my question is, what is the state of the science energy return over energy invested ratio now for offshore wind? And the second short question is, what about floating offshore? How, how soon is that going to come? Floating uh, offshore wind turbine. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, actually, uh, I talked to all the developers today, this morning, and uh, floating is, of course, an option. Uh, 
changed over the last years. So it looked not so, uh, people were not so optimistic five years ago, but now they, they uh, solved some problems uh, with the, um, um, with lining the, the, um, the platform and have it stable. Um, but the advantage is that you can mount the whole platform on land and then um, ship it to the place where it should produce. Um, so this is coming. Um, everybody's expecting that within the next 10 years. Um, the cost um, or the share of the embedded energy, um, we have the same arguments with uh, solar PV. And of course, the first generation solar PV needed more energy than it produced. And now it, you, you get the energy back within the first six months of the solar panel. And uh, same will happen more or less to, to offshore at the moment. I think it's more. Uh, so we are quite optimistic in that regard. But maybe I would also like to comment on one question, why offshore and not onshore? We have the same in Germany, of course, and things are going back and forth. One argument, of course, is you have uh, more or less double the production rate, so you these machines run 4,500, 5,000 hours instead of, in Germany, at least the 2,000 hours on land. So that is a huge and important factor. And, um, yeah. Did you want to add anything, Tom? Uh, okay. Okay, go ahead, sir. Uh, my question is, so, a little bit of a common question. Uh, it seems like to me that the Europe in general is a higher cost power area than the United States. And where you say that the supply chain, if we advance in the United States, we're bringing prices down, which is undoubtedly correct. But even if the prices were brought down to the level that they are in Europe at this point, it, it's a little bit of a question to me that they still um, be compatible with where our price structures are at a lower level. And uh, my question is, is what technological innovations are you looking at that might be different than what is being done in uh, Europe at this time that might be able to lower those uh, um, uh, capital costs? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge your premise without answering your question because I think your premise is wrong. Um, so I think it's uh, energy prices again are a very market specific question. Uh, and there certainly are markets in the U.S. right now that are very cheap. There's a lot of old coal plants that were built in the 50s and 60s that are still chugging along and power prices are very cheap. There are other markets, however, in the U.S. where power prices are not nearly as low as the average or in places like Kentucky or Ohio. Uh, the Northeast is one of those areas. In the New England region, uh, New York, and even into New Jersey, we're building a new gas plant that is a new build is just about the same price as building a new offshore wind farm in Europe today. So the price of what they're building a, a, the latest offshore wind farm today uh, is just about the same price of what it would cost to build a new natural gas plant in New England today. So we're not very far. We've got to move that supply chain from Europe to the U.S. We've got to build the first few projects in the U.S., which won't be nearly as, as efficient as the projects uh, that are being built in Europe today. But the state of the technology in Europe today, with bigger machines, bigger rotors, more efficient, more efficient machines, 
very lots of lessons learned on installing and maintaining these projects um, shows that these projects can be built at a cost very, very competitive with building other new sources of generation. Remember, when you build a new power plant, whatever it is, it's more expensive than what you're paying today. So your, your power bill, your electricity bill today includes power plants that were built in the 50s. That's why the energy is cheap. If you build a new power plant, your, your electricity bill is going to go up because ratepayers have to absorb that new capital cost they didn't have previously. So it's always important when we're comparing, and I think it's really important for policymakers to understand this, that when you're comparing energy sources, you have to compare building something new to the cost of building something new. Not the cost of building an offshore wind farm versus the average cost on your power bill today. Because you have to, you have to compare apples to apples. So new offshore wind farm versus solar versus gas plant versus nuclear plant, they all have a capital cost. And you've always got to compare building something new to building something new. And when you make that comparison, offshore wind really is one of the strongest options in many markets in the US. I will answer the second question, which is the technology piece. And I think it's, it's you know, most of what we're talking about is in the machine turbine, and the turbines are getting larger and larger. When we started looking at the Block Island project just in 2008-2009, we thought that we'd be using a 3.6 megawatt turbine. We're now using a 6 megawatt turbine. Uh, and, and that, there's been a tremendous technological advancement in the size and efficiency of the turbines. We're now thinking about the development of our next project, which is a few years away from construction, and we're thinking about where will the technology be? What size machine will we, will we be using? We're using a six megawatt machine for Block Island. We certainly won't be using a six megawatt machine for the next project. Is it a seven, an eight, a 10 megawatt machine? Something that's 700 feet tall, uh, that, that has not a 50% capacity factor, but a 55 or a 60? Who knows? Where that's, that's the principal place of real step change in the cost is really on the turbine technology. There are a number of other things in the supply chain, more efficient foundations and, and better electrical systems that they can improve at increments. But certainly the technological change in turbines is really what drives most much of our business. We also have to recognize that it's not just the cost of the, the hard equipment that goes into those costs. There's the you know, process of building the facility, and there's also the cost of finance. Um, and one of the things you've seen in the solar sector in the U.S. is that the actual you know, price of the PV panels is an increasingly small part of the total product project cost, and it's the cost of the guys to go out there and do it, and the cost of getting the money together and the interest rates and all that behind the project. So you see companies like Solar City becoming very innovative, not in the PV panel, but in getting PV panels on roofs and paid for. Great. Um, any last question? Otherwise, I want to thank our panel very, very much for being